After 123 years of dormancy, Mount St. Helens awoke from their slumber in the middle of March 1980. Little did the world know that in around two months' time, the largest volcanic eruption in US history would occur and show the world the power of Mount St. Helens. Hello, and welcome to The Disaster Files. I'm your host, Jacob. And in this podcast, I'm going to be looking in detail at a variety of geophysical, hydrometeorological, and man-made disaster events. With every episode, I will look at the timeline of the events that occur, delve deep into the cause of the event, looking at the impacts on a variety of scales, and evaluating the responses, and what has been learnt from the disaster. In this first episode, we are going to be looking at the catastrophic 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, looking at the timeline of the events that occurred and initial impacts to hit the Pacific Northwest. Episode 1, Mount St. Helens, 1980. Mount St. Helens is the most well-known volcano in the Cascade Volcanic Arc, which is found in the northwest Pacific region of the United States and British Columbia. This region of volcanism is formed due to the subduction of the Juan de Fuca, Explorer and Gorda plates, which are the remnants of the much larger Farallon plate underneath the North American plate. The Cascadia subduction zone is a 1,100km long fault zone that runs from Northern California to Vancouver Island. Mount St. Helens sits about 50 miles northeast of the city of Portland, Oregon and 96 miles south of Seattle, Washington, which means that it's quite close to two rather large population centres. In 2019, the city of Portland, Oregon, had a recorded 654,000 people living there, and Seattle had 750,000 people. This is why the eruption of Mount St. Helens was so well known. Even though the populations wouldn't have been as large as that in the 1980s, the populations were still relatively large, and so to have these cities within reach of this volcano meant that lots of people were aware when it started to change and when it started to show signs of eruption. Mount St. Helens is primarily an explosive volcano, with a very complex magmatic system. The volcano was formed during four main eruptive stages, beginning around 275,000 years ago, and has been the most active volcano in this Cascade Range during the Holocene period, which is around the last 11,500 years. The bulk of the modern edifice, prior to the 1980 eruption, was constructed during the last 3,000 years, when the volcano erupted a wide variety of products from summit and flank vents, with, historically, the volcano producing high amounts of tephra, pyroclastic flow deposits and lava domes. Historical eruptions in the 19th century originated on the northern flanks, close to the goat rock vents, and were witnessed by early settlers. Now, these historical eruptions of Mount St. Helens were the first recorded activity, and the first bits of activity in which we have records of. But they were also the last time that it erupted before the 1980s. This meant that no one was really aware of the power of Mount St. Helens, and no one knew what to expect when it would start rumbling again. On March 16th, 
the first signs of Mount St. Helens waking up started. The initial activity was just a small series of earthquakes, but these earthquakes continued through to March 27th, and on this day, Mount St. Helens erupted for the first time in over 100 years. Now, it was a magmatic eruption, which is just a steam eruption, and it blasted a 60 to 75 metre crater through the summit ice cap and covered the southeastern sector of Mount St. Helens with dark ash. These eruptions continued quite frequently and soon the crater of the volcano had grown to upwards of 400 metres in diameter, with cracks crossing the entire summit area. The eruptive activity from this first stage continued through to the 22nd of April. At this point, activity ceased for a very short period of time. But by the 7th of May, small eruptions had resumed again, and then these continued for 10 more days through to May 17th. By the middle of May, more than 10,000 earthquakes had shaken the volcano, and the north flank had started to grow outward about 140 metres to form a very prominent and very visible bulge on the edifice of the volcano. Since the start of the eruption, the bulge had been growing at a very dramatic rate. Horizontally, it was growing by about 2 metres per day. Now, such dramatic deformation of the volcano was the strongest evidence that magma was rising, and it was getting really quite close to the surface of the volcano. The reason why this bulge was likely forming was because magma was being injected into the magmatic system underneath. Now, as the magma is rising up close to the surface, there is less pressure on it. And as that pressure is released off the magma, the gas that is trapped inside the magma starts to expand. And with the type of magma that we find under Mount St. Helens, this is going to cause quite a lot of issues. The magma here is going to be extremely, extremely viscous, which means it's going to be incredibly difficult for the gases to escape. In lots of volcanic eruptions, like the ones we see in Hawaii or the ones we see in Iceland, the magma is not viscous at all. It's really runny, and that's because of the chemical composition. It's incredibly different. Now, in a volcano like Mount St. Helens, the magma, the lava, it's incredibly thick. Now, that is due to the fact it's on a different type of plate boundary. In Hawaii, it's on a hot spot. And in Iceland, it's on a constructive boundary, but it's also got a hotspot underneath it. Now, they're going to produce a very different magma type to what we see in Mount St. Helens, which is on a destructive plate boundary. And it's often due to the amount of silica within the magma itself. Now, in the area of Mount St. Helens, there's going to be a lot more silica. And so, therefore, it's going to be thicker. And then this will, therefore, make it harder for gases to escape. And as those gases try to expand, there's going to be a lot more pressure building up inside the actual magma. And it's more likely that when it reaches the surface, it's going to be an extremely explosive eruption. On the morning of May 18th, at 8.32am, a magnitude 5.1 earthquake rumbled and shook the ground around Mount St. Helens. Now, this earthquake triggered a series of events that happened in extremely rapid succession. These were a debris avalanche, one of the largest recorded in history, a lateral blast, a Plinian eruption column, 
lahars, pyroclastic flows, and also a tsunami. Now, this is why Mount St. Helens is one of the most well-known volcanic eruptions. It's because all of those events happened in such rapid succession, took everybody by surprise, even the volcanologists who have been monitoring the volcano for months. And it really was a truly historical event. This earthquake triggered a mass movement of the bulge found on the northern flank of the volcano. This landslide is the largest recorded in Earth's history. The debris avalanche swept around and up the ridges to the north, but most of it turned westward as far as 23 kilometres down the valley of the North Fork Tootle River and formed a hummocky deposit. The total avalanche volume is estimated to be around 2.5 kilometres cubed, which is the equivalent of about 1 million Olympic swimming pools. The landslide removed Mount St. Helens' northern flank, including part of the cryptodome that had grown inside the volcano. Now, this cryptodome was incredibly hot and also highly pressurised, and so when that pressure was removed very rapidly from that body of magma, it resulted in an immediate depressurization of that magmatic system. Now, this is where that extremely powerful eruptive blast came from. And because the debris was sliding down the volcano, the blast was lateral. Now, this lateral eruption very quickly overtook the debris avalanche. It accelerated to around 418 kilometers per hour, and within a few minutes with the eruption, the eruption cloud of blast tephra began to rise from the former summit crater. And within less than 15 minutes, that eruption plume had reached a height of more than 24 kilometers. This lateral blast devastated an area nearly 30 kilometers from west to east and more than 20 kilometres northward of the former summit. In a zone extending nearly 10 kilometres from the summit, virtually no trees remained of what was once dense forest. Just beyond this area, all the standing trees were blown to the ground, and at the blast's outer limit, the remaining trees were thoroughly seared. The 600 kilometre square devastated area was blanketed by a deposit of hot debris that was carried by the lateral blast. Now, the lateral blast wasn't the only very rapid removal of the material. The removal of the cryptodome and the flank also exposed the conduit of Mount St. Helens. Now, this resulted in rapid depressurization of the top of the volcanic plumbing system. Now, this depressurization wave propagated down from the conduit to the magma storage region below the volcano. And this allowed the pent-up magma to expand upwards towards the vent opening. Now, in less than an hour after the start of the eruption, the loss of conduit pressure initiated the Plinian eruption. The massive tephra plume rose high into the atmosphere. Beginning just after noon, swift pyroclastic flows poured out of the crater around 80 to 130 kilometers an hour and were spreading as far as 8 kilometers to the north. 
and it created an area now known as the Pumice Plain. This plinian phase continued for around 9 hours. It produced an extremely high eruption column, numerous pyroclastic flows and ashfall downwind of the eruption. Scientists estimated that the eruption reached its peak between 3pm in the afternoon and 5pm. When the plinian phase was over, a new northward opening summit amphitheatre was revealed. Now this was created due to the mass movement, due to the landslide that occurred, but also due to just the sheer eruptive power of Mount St Helens. Over the course of the 18th of May, prevailing winds blew 520 million tonnes of ash eastward across the United States, and it also caused a complete blackout in Spokane, Washington, 400 kilometers from the volcano. Major ashfall occurred as far away as central Montana, and ash fell visibly as far eastward as the Great Plains of the central United States, more than 1,500 kilometers away. The ash spread across the US in three days and circled the Earth within two weeks. The May 18th event of 1980 was the deadliest and most economically destructive volcanic eruption in US history. Approximately 57 people were killed directly from the blast, 200 houses, 47 bridges, 24 kilometers of railways and 298 kilometers of highways were destroyed, two people were killed indirectly due to accidents that resulted from poor visibility and two more people suffered from fatal heart attacks from shoveling ash. The US president at the time, Jimmy Carter, surveyed the damage and said it looked more like a desolate moonscape than the United States. Now, out of the 57 deaths that were recorded, I'm going to talk about two very notable deaths, and they are of Harry R. Truman and David A. Johnson. And I'm going to start off with Harry R. Truman, and that's because when I first learned about Mount St. Helens, his death was the one that really stuck in my mind. And he is one of the most memorable people from my first time learning about Mount St. Helens. Harry R. Truman was an 83-year-old businessman who ran the Mount St. Helens Lodge at Spirit Lake at the foot of the volcano. Truman became particularly well-known during the two months of volcanic activity before the actual eruption in May. And when he was being interviewed by the press or giving interviews to reporters, he was sort of expressing the fact that, oh, well, you know, it's all going to blow over. Oh, this is all over-exaggerated. And he very much had little concern about the volcano. And actually, he was quoted as saying, if the mountain goes, I'm going with it. Now, he was also quite sure that because he was such a distance away, he was over a mile away and he had the Spirit Lake between them, that he actually wasn't going to be harmed if the volcano was to erupt. And law enforcement officials were getting quite incensed by his refusal to evacuate. Uh, and the main reason was because the media kept on wanting to go and interview him, so they had to go into the restricted zone, which meant that they were endangering themselves in the process. However, no matter what the officials said, Truman remained steadfast, and he said, you couldn't pull me out with a mule team. That mountain's part of Truman, and Truman's part of that mountain. Truman actually 
you know, was talking to the media about how he was adapting to live with the activity. He was now living in his basement so that he could be less disturbed by any precursor earthquakes. He wore spurs in bed so that he was more stable when he slept. And he was just scoffing at the public's concern for his safety. He said, the mountain has shot its wad and it hasn't hurt my place a bit. But those goddamn geologists with their hair down to their butts wouldn't pay no attention to old Truman. He was very much against anyone else's opinion. He was a very strong and opinionated man who knew his environment, knew the dangers he was at, and he was very much defiant in it. Now Truman became somewhat of a folk hero, and he was subject of many songs and poems by children. One group of children from Salem, Oregon, sent him banners inscribed with, Harry, we love you. And he just, he loved this attention that he was getting. He loved the, the fact that he was getting so much fanfare. All about how he was just being resilient and standing up to these people who clearly didn't know the volcano as much as he did. Now, he received many fan letters. He received marriage proposals. Uh, he got letters coming from all the way across the United States. And often he would respond to them. He would send them letters back. He would send them a bit of volcanic ash with them. And he was really appreciative of the fact he was getting all this attention. And he was getting this sort of media frenzy. He appeared on the front page of the New York Times, San Francisco Examiner, the National Geographic, uh, the Today Show. He was he was really well, well known. And it was all because he had this fiery attitude, a brash speech and a love of the outdoors. And he was fiercely independent. And that his unbendable character and response to the force of nature really just made him immortalised and a lot of people were just enamoured by the way he acted because he was very very different and most of the people would have reacted in a completely different way and so people really looked up to him for that. As the likelihood of an eruption increased state officials tried to evacuate the area with the exception of a few scientists and some security officials and on May the 17th, the day before Mount St. Helens erupted, they attempted one final time to persuade Truman to leave, but to no avail. The volcano erupted the next morning on May 18th, and with its entire northern flank collapsing, Truman was unfortunately lost in the eruption. Truman was alone at his lodge with his 16 cats, and it's very likely that he died due to heat shock in less than a second which was too quick to register the pain, and his body was likely vaporised. The landslide is also likely to have buried him, and his lodge was actually found under 46 metres of debris. Now, Truman's remains were never found, and neither were the remains of any of his cats as well. Now, some friends and fans hoped that Truman might have survived as he had claimed to have provisioned an abandoned mine shaft with food and liquor in case of an eruption. But it is likely due to the very rapid onset of the eruption that he is unlikely to have been able to escape to the shaft before the pyroclastic flows reached his lodge, which was less than a minute after it began. Even if Truman had made it to the mine shaft, the landslide would likely have suffocated him and or prevented his rescue. His sister, Geraldine, 
said that she found it hard to accept the reality of his death. I don't think he made it, but I thought if they would let me fly over and see for myself that Harry's lodge is gone, then maybe I'd believe it for sure. Truman's niece, Shirley Rosen, added that her uncle thought he could escape the volcano, but was not expecting the lateral eruption. She stated that her sister took him a bottle of bourbon whiskey to persuade him to evacuate, but he was too afraid to drink alcohol at the time because he was unsure whether the shaking was coming from his body or the earthquakes. His prized possessions were auctioned off as keepsakes to admirers in September of 1980. Truman's legacy has managed to live on, and he's still very much one of the most prominent figures to come out of the Mount St. Helens eruption. And he stuck in my mind when I learned about this eruption, all the way back when I was in primary school. And a lot of people around the world probably feel this very same way. Now, the next person I want to talk about is someone who is very much admired for their bravery and their work on Mount St. Helens, and that's David Johnson. David Johnson was a volcanologist with the USGS, the United States Geological Survey, and his career took him all across the United States. However, he is most well known for the efforts of his work on Mount St. Helens. His work and the work of the fellow USGS scientists convinced the authorities to close the Mount St. Helens to the public before the eruption. And they helped maintain that closure despite heavy pressure to reopen the area. And it's likely that because they managed to keep the area closed, that saved thousands of lives. It's likely that Johnson was killed due to the fastest pyroclastic flows, which would have reached him in less than a minute. However, before he was killed in the eruption, he managed to radio to his USGS co-workers with this message. Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. Seconds later, the signal from his radio went silent, and all contact with him was lost. Now, there was some debate as to whether Johnson had survived. However... A radio message from a fellow eruption victim and amateur radio operator, Jerry Martin, said that he had seen Johnson's post, had been overwhelmed, and then solemnly he read the message that it's going to get me too, before his radio went silent. David Johnson has been uh, memorialised in several different ways. He has got research grants that are named after him. There's two volcano observatories that were established and named after him. One that is in Vancouver, Washington, and another on the ridge where he died. He has been the feature of several documentaries, films, books, and most recently, the book A Hero on Mount St. Helens, The Life and Legacy of David A. Johnson, was released in 2019. Now, both of these deaths are completely opposite of each other. Johnson, who was someone who had spent his life dedicated to volcanology, studying volcanoes and was a key player in reducing some of the impacts of the Mount St. Helens eruption. And then you have Truman, someone who was very much against all the scientists, very much saying that he knew the area that he lived in and he was passionate about being able to stay in his area and that if he was going to die then so, then so be it. And it just shows 
sort of the true character of these people and the fact that both of these people have been sort of immortalized in memories of those who have learned about it. Now, there has been some minor controversy in regards to the exact death toll. The figure that is most commonly cited is 57. However, there are two major points of dispute. The first point regards two officially listed victims, Paul Hayat and Dale Fire. They were reported missing after the eruption. However, in the aftermath, investigators were able to locate individuals named Paul Hayat and Dale Fire, who were alive and well. However, they were unable to determine who reported Hayat missing, and the person who was reported as listed Fire missing claimed she was not the one who had done so, since the investigators could not verify that they were the same Hayat and Fire who reported missing. Their names still remain listed among the presumed dead. The second point of controversy relates to three missing people who are not officially listed as victims. Robert Ruffell, Stephen Wissett and Mark Melanson. Cowlitz County Emergency Services Management lists them as missing, not on the official list. According to Melanson's brother, in October 1983... Cowlitz County officials told his family that Melanson is believed to be a victim of the May 18th, 1980 eruption, and that after years of searching, the family eventually decided he's buried in the ash. Taking these two points of dispute into consideration, the direct death toll could be as low as 55 or as high as 60. And if you want to include the indirect deaths related to those who died of heart attacks and in crashes due to poor visibility, that number could range from 59 to 64. Now, aside from the main impacts of the fact that 57 people were killed, including the two notable deaths that I've talked about, there was also a lot of other impacts as well. More than 9.4 million cubic metres of timber was damaged or destroyed, mainly by that lateral blast. And that really had a massive economic impact on the area. Timber is one of the main industries in the area, and so therefore, with a lot of that timber being destroyed, and only 25% of it being able to be salvaged, it's likely that that could have had an impact on the economy in that local area. But also areas downwind of the volcano where thick ash accumulation caused many agricultural crops to fail. And a lot of wildlife were also killed as well, such as salmon, deer and elk. Now all of these are environmental as well as being economic. Because this is a rural area and so a lot of people are going to be depending on those industries to work or to get money in order to survive. Now, these weren't the only economic effects. The initial public reaction to the May 18th eruption dealt a nearly crippling blow to tourism, which is an important industry in Washington. Not only was tourism down in the Mount St. Helens area, but also in areas such as Washington and Oregon were affected by the eruption. However, this was only temporary. And eventually, with the opening of visitor centres, a lot of people started to go and visit this area, and actually there was a bit of a boom for tourism in the area. 
Now, personally, I am that person that will go and visit an area that has been impacted from a volcanic eruption or any sort of natural hazard or disaster event because I want to go and experience it, I want to go and see it, and I want to go visualise it with my own eyes. And I want to see if I can sort of put myself into their shoes and feel think about what they were experiencing at the time. Now, in terms of responses, there was a fantastic response from the state and federal agencies. They very quickly removed and disposed of ash that was causing lots of issues on the roads and on the airports. Uh, some cities were using old quarries and landfills as sort of sites to dump all this extra ash. And also they did that so it could minimise the wind picking up that ash and remobilising it. Now aid was almost instantaneously released. Approximately 951 million US dollars for disaster relief was voted by Congress, of which the largest share went to the Small Business Administration, the US Army Corps of Engineers, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Now, that uh, total has been refined up to about 3.4 billion if it was uh, in 2018. So that's just accounting for inflation. Now, in terms of other responses, there's not been too many. The US is an extremely wealthy country and therefore it was able to respond extremely quickly. The area had already been evacuated so there was very little that needed in terms of search and rescue although a little bit was done to try and find anyone who had been in the area at the time. But overall a lot of the typical responses we'd see after a volcanic eruption were already in place. The volcano was well monitored as soon as it started showing signs of activity. And now the volcano is under a constant state of monitoring and the USGS is extremely effective at being able to communicate any changes. This was shown when activity continued all the way through to 1989. And then again between 2004 and 2008 when Mount Saint, Saint Helens showed dome building activity. And therefore in terms of responses it was extremely effective. There was no real need for a change because it had already been done very effectively. Now, when in later episodes we look at uh, volcanic eruptions in less developed countries, we are going to see how in terms of the responses and what has been learned, there are lots of mistakes to learn from. However, Mount St. Helens is a fantastic example because there weren't that many mistakes. A lot of the deaths were people who had been in the uh, evacuation zone and they knew the risks that they were taking being in that zone. But also the US is a wealthy country. They can throw a lot of money at the response and the relief in these areas. Unlike a lot of countries that we're going to see that will struggle with terms of infrastructure and having an effective disaster management plan. Thank you so much for listening to this very first episode of The Disaster Files. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and leaving a five-star review. It will help the podcast grow, and if you have any feedback with regards to sound quality or any suggestions of disaster events, or any feedback on the content in the podcast, then please just send me an email at disasterfilespod at gmail.com. 
You can find me on Instagram at The Disaster Files. I would like to thank the USGS for their absolutely fantastic resources which helped me research this amazing disaster event. I would also like to thank the Sour Squid for designing my logo art as well. Thank you very much and stay tuned for new episodes coming out soon.